Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 34 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I appreciate everyone taking the time to give us a listen this month. Uh, as per usual, i got a cadre of speakers and guests with us today, so going down my list quickly, I have System Medical Director, Dr. Ben West and Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Podra. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Our in-house EMS fellows, Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. And Dr. Nick Lukinski. Dr. Lukinski, welcome. Hey there. And joining us this month as a special guest, uh, we have Dr. Madeline Field, who is a pediatric emergency medicine fellow. And I will allow them to get into a little bit more detail and introduction here shortly. Uh, but as per usual, we will... Uh, jump into some updates. So Dan, anything for the system? Yeah, thanks Jeff. Just a couple of real quick things. Um, coming up soon is EMS week 2023. So thank you to all for your dedication and continued service to the EMS profession. Many systems in the country are nearing 50 years, just like we are here locally in Milwaukee County. We've come a long way since the pioneers of EMS at Freedom House Ambulance in Pittsburgh with lots of exciting improvements and research that we continue to be involved in. So very much looking forward to the future. Uh, and also recently, we have just received our 2022 data from the CARES registry. And so CARES is the cardiac arrest registry for enhancing survival. Um, a couple of facts uh, that, that came out with our report compared to the rest of the nation. Uh, we had a higher survival rate, uh, just like we have for the past several years, but we were at 10%, while the national average is at 9.3%. Uh, we are very quick in getting to cardiac arrest. We're nearly two and a half minutes faster than the median response time across the country at 5.2 minutes here locally. Uh, and then one big opportunity for improvement would be the utilization of AEDs by public bystanders for those who recognize cardiac arrest. So uh, look forward to finding opportunities to train the public uh, and some efforts and initiatives coming hopefully out of OEM uh, soon. So that's it for the system. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much, Dan. And then a message from medical direction. So Dr. Weston, take it away. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And happy upcoming National EMS Week as well to everyone. Uh, not sure when you'll listen to this podcast, so we'll make it happy EMS month to cover all our bases. Uh, thanks for all that you do for our patients and our community. Today, we're going to talk about trauma field triage. We recently introduced the most substantial change in years to how we triage our trauma patients here in Milwaukee County. The new red and yellow criteria is certainly simplified from prior, but also in, in many ways more comprehensive with really critical changes that you'll hear about in the coming minutes from our uh, various guests. Now, this is also part of a broader effort to better regionalize our trauma system to ensure the highest level of patient-centered care. So more on that to come uh, in the, the upcoming months. But for now, uh, I'll hand it back to Jeff to get our show moving forward. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Weston. Uh, and without further ado, I will hand it off to Drs. McGlynn, Wiklinski, and Field to take us through some field trauma guidelines. Docs. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So why are we talking about trauma this month? So as stated, this month's podcast will be surrounding trauma, more specifically the updates to the trauma field triage guidelines. With the improvement in the weather comes an uptick in trauma, so we thought this update was well-timed. As you may know, the field trauma guidelines we use are developed and published by the American College of Surgeons periodically. Many other organizations endorse and help develop these guidelines, including the American College of Emergency Physicians, 
the National Association of EMS Physicians and Emergency Medical Services for Children, NAEMNT, and NREMT, just to name a few. These guidelines are a set of criteria to help triage trauma patients to the most appropriate trauma facilities. The most recent update was published in 2021, with the last update being 2011. Normally, these guidelines are updated about every five years, but thanks to COVID, this most recent update was a little delayed. During these periodic reviews, members of ACS review the available literature on trauma triage to see if our practices need updating or modifying. Basically, does the current criteria we use result in appropriate triage of trauma patients, or are we under or over triaging people? And the field trauma process is so important as it helps identify seriously injured patients in need of care at specialized trauma centers from among the larger number of patients with minor to moderate injuries who can be cared for at non-trauma hospitals. It is crucial that trauma patients are transported to the correct location as trauma patients who are taken to non-trauma centers have a moderately increased risk of death. As part of our recent guideline updates, we have updated our trauma field triage guidelines. So we want to take time this month to highlight those updates why we change them and how we apply them to our trauma patients. We have a lot to cover this month, so let's dive in. First, we're gonna walk through the March E algorithm, just as a reminder of how we care for our trauma patients. This is also placed at the top of the guideline to remind you of this. This March E approach helps you address and assess major life threats and injuries immediately. So M is massive hemorrhage. So pack those wounds, get those tourniquets on quickly if indicated, and slow down or stop the bleeding. Remember, if one tourniquet doesn't cut it, place another above the original one and leave those on until the patient gets to the hospital. A is for airway, so clear out any obstruction, place an NPA or OPA if needed. R for respirations, so this is where we're addressing the lungs. This is BVM, needle decompression, placing an occlusive dressing, and trying to stabilize any flail chest. Another point here is to try and place an eye gel if the patient is altered enough to the point where they would accept an oral airway and don't have a gag reflex. And that brings us to C. So circling back to circulation after we address the above, um, this is to kind of address any hypotension that may be developing. So we want to start IV fluids, consider a pelvic binder or pericardiocentesis if indicated, and also start CPR, obviously, if the patient is pulseless. Now notice how far down CPR is here. This is a little outside the scope of this podcast, but remember that CPR and trauma is lower on the priority list. Rather, focus on reversal of what you can, such as the bleeding, tension pneumo, et cetera, and then move on to CPR. The utility of CPR in trauma patients is extremely low if we haven't addressed reversible injuries first. After C, we move on to age, which is head injury. This is where we monitor the GCS following TBI guidelines. Key aspects from managing pre-hospital traumatic brain injuries include preventing hypoxemia, so making sure patients are on oxygen, preventing hypercapnia, so ensuring proper ventilation and monitoring end tidal CO2, making sure you're targeting about 30 to 35 there, and then also keeping the head of bed elevated. Finally, we have E, which is exposure and expedite transfer. So give a good once over, get the clothes off, look for other injuries, stabilize fractures, manage pain, and get them to the hospital. Remember, we want to keep scene time to less than 10 minutes if possible. Critically ill trauma patients frequently require surgery, which is why we want to get them to the hospital as soon as possible. Once you have progressed down this pathway, then it is time to apply the trauma field triage criteria to determine where the patient will be transported. The critical trauma patients are easy. Get them to our highest level one trauma centers, which are Freighter and Children's Hospital. Those patients that fall more in the middle ground tend to be more difficult to disposition, and that's when these criteria become more important. 
So let's spend some time reviewing our updated field triage criteria, highlighting the changes that have been made. Like the previous guidelines, there are four categories to consider when evaluating a trauma patient. These categories are injury patterns, mental status with vital signs, mechanism of injury, and EMS provider judgment. Abnormalities in one of the first three categories, so injury, mental status with vital signs or mechanism, portend a higher likelihood for significant traumatic injury and should result in the patient being transported at this time to our two level one trauma centers in the system, Freighter and Children's. An abnormality in the fourth category, EMS judgment, may indicate transport to a level one trauma center, but not necessarily all the time. We'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. As we run through these changes, please refer to your updated guidelines and the upcoming trauma lecture for more information. If you'd like, you can also pull up the old field trauma criteria by Googling 2011 field trauma criteria or checking out the link in the show notes. So first we'll discuss some of the injury patterns to look out for when evaluating the trauma field triage guidelines. So this category saw a couple additions and a couple revisions. The presence of these injuries are highly specific, but not necessarily sensitive for identifying seriously injured patients. So meaning if these injuries are there, the likelihood this patient is seriously injured is pretty high, but the absence of them does not reliably indicate that they are not seriously injured. So one of the new additions here is active bleeding requiring a tourniquet or wound packing, regardless of where said bleeding is located, proximal or distal. Tourniquet application has been criteria for trauma center eval in our system for a little while now, but that was not included in the 2011 guidelines. So it's now considered new here. Other than bleeding, the injuries themselves are unchanged. The revision here was really surrounding the wording to include suspicion rather than a confirmed injury for some of these particular injuries to help provide more leeway for EMS providers and your evaluations in the field. The list includes suspicion of two long bone fractures, a skull fracture, flail chest, or a pelvic fracture. And the big emphasis here is the fact that there's not any frank outward sign of these injuries it's more based on hemodynamics and the mechanism of injury. These injuries are likely under-recognized, so education here is key and to help recognize them. This is one of those places where we want you guys using a pelvic binder if there's any sort of concern for pelvic fracture. Similar to needle decompressions, pelvic binders are underutilized but can have a meaningful impact on our patient's care. Also, suspected C-spine fractures previously was referred to as like motor or sensory loss, but now uh, if there's any suspected C-spine fracture, these patients need to go to a level one trauma center. The next category is vitals and mental status. So this category saw some of the more significant updates, and here's where you should pay particular attention if you haven't been already. There were five new criteria that were added while three were removed. New criteria here include a motor GCS less than six. So that means the patient is unable to follow commands. The key aspect here is it's motor GCS we're looking at rather than full GCS. Previously, the criteria had GCS less than or equal to 13 going to a major trauma center. Now, this does not mean we're not doing a complete GCS. That evaluation and tracking of mental status is still incredibly important, but we're just looking at motor GCS to help determine our destination. The rationale here surrounds education needed to ensure this exam is performed correctly. Studies have shown that motor GCS is just as good as a comprehensive GCS in predicting severe injury. Trauma patients who cannot follow commands have a higher likelihood of severe injury and should be transported accordingly. The panel felt that simplifying this to motor GCS was adequate and more efficient when trying to decide who should go to the trauma center. To simplify this further, an easy way to think about this is anyone who's unable to follow commands meets criteria for transport to the highest level trauma center 
and no more fancy math. But again, still perform that full GCS and make sure to record it. Another new criteria here provided a better way for us to assess hemodynamics and looking to see primarily if the heart rate was greater than systolic blood pressure for anyone over 10. The concept of comparing heart rate against systolic blood pressure is calculating what is called a shock index and is a measurement that can identify shock earlier. If you think logically, your systolic blood pressure should almost never be higher than your heart rate. When you think about how vital signs change as a patient develops shock, your heart rate elevates prior to your blood pressure dropping in an attempt to compensate and maintain adequate perfusion. So thinking about a patient with a heart rate of 160 and a systolic blood pressure of 120, that is a positive shock index because their heart rate is greater than their systolic blood pressure. While you might say, hey, their blood pressure is normal, it isn't normal that their heart rate is so high. And that is because it's an early marker of potential shock. A positive shock index can be even more subtle. For example, a heart rate of 110 and a systolic blood pressure of 100. These can be subtle, but they are a significant indicator of potential shock and should be treated as serious vital signs leading to a level one trauma center transport. You're going to have to start including this in your vital sign evaluation to trigger appropriate destination. This criteria, again, applies only to those greater than nine years old. Remember that hypotension in kiddos is classified differently given their blood pressures run lower than their adult counterparts. So let's talk a little bit more about pediatrics. This kind of takes us back to our pediatric podcast from last fall when we talked about the pediatric triangle and assessing pediatric patients. Make sure to review this and be familiar with it. Thankfully, today we have pediatric emergency medicine fellow, Dr. Madeline Fields, who will provide some of the salient pediatric takeaways from this update. Thanks so much for having me. So for kids zero to nine years, the panel added some specific age-based vital sign criteria. Systolic blood pressure, if it's less than 70 plus two times the age in years. So pediatric trauma patients with a systolic blood pressure under this threshold should raise concern for severe injury and should be transported accordingly. For example, there was a five-year-old in a car crash. The kid has no signs of trauma, is mentating appropriately, and their vital signs are heart rate 150, blood pressure 72 over 30, respiratory rate 25, and SpO2 98% on room air. Using the SBP criteria here, you'll find that the kid's blood pressure cutoff is 80 or 70 plus five times two, given that they're five years old, which this kid falls under with a systolic blood pressure of 72, raising concerns for serious injury. He should be preferentially taken to the pediatric level one trauma center. Remember that unlike adults, hypotension is a very late finding in pediatric patients. So pay close attention to other cues of developing shock, such as tachycardia, skin modeling, or cyanosis. Because this is a calculation we don't use every day, we need to be sure to use our charts appropriately to calculate our systolic blood pressure. Further, we need to make sure that all pediatric patients get a blood pressure checked as it is always part of a complete evaluation. Great. Thanks, Dr. Fields. So another new criteria here is looking at respiratory distress or the need for respiratory support. This was updated from need ventilatory support to help better capture these patients. Any trauma patient who needs respiratory support, whether it's from a BVM, airway repositioning, intubation, or IGEL placement, et cetera, is at high risk for serious injury. 
Further, there used to be respiratory rate cutoffs for infants less than one year, but that was gotten rid of as it is nonspecific or sensitive. Another important note here is respiratory distress. While frank respiratory distress is apparent, there may be more subtle signs like persistent tachypnea and accessory muscle use that are more easily overlooked and can actually be early indicators of respiratory compromise. Try to pay close attention to these findings. This finding is likely the most difficult to pick up on, but when you're thinking about the progression of how shock develops, respiratory rate is the first vital sign to change in someone developing shock as they look to compensate for tissue malperfusion with increased oxygen intake. All right, and then finally, the last addition to this vital signs mental status category is a room pulse ox less than 90% on room air. Studies have shown that hypoxemia in trauma patients can be an indicator of serious injury and should be taken more seriously. For example, you're evaluating a patient in a moderate speed motor vehicle crash who is not already on oxygen and initially is 89% on room air, which improves readily to 100% with supplemental oxygen and is otherwise hemodynamically stable without any other signs of trauma. This may be someone you elect to send BLS had they been a medical patient, but this is not the case with a trauma patient. The transient hypoxemia raises concern for a more serious injury, such as a hemothorax, and warrants transport to a trauma center, preferentially via ALS. Another criteria that falls under this category is relocation of systolic blood pressure. So systolic blood pressure less than 110 for older adults, so meaning 65 or older. This criteria was present in the previous guidelines from 2011, but it was actually located towards the bottom in an area called special considerations. It's been moved up here because it's a stronger recommendation while we're evaluating these older patients. Having a higher systolic blood pressure threshold helps us capture patients with severe or significant injuries more frequently and lets us get those patients to a trauma center faster. All right, and so now we'll move on to the mechanism of injury. So you're probably fairly familiar with the older version of this category, things like death in the passenger compartment, but there have been some notable changes. Again, we are only discussing the aspects that have changed, so please review the guideline and refresh yourself with the rest of the criteria. First, children ages nine and younger who are unrestrained or in an unsecured child safety seat should always go to a trauma center, so children's for our purposes. This was not previously specified, but there is a lot of data on this. Kids who are not properly restrained have more severe injuries, greater trauma resource needs, and are more likely to die than the restrained children. Motor vehicle crashes are a common cause of pediatric trauma, and we should have a high suspicion of serious injury in unrestrained children. Second, significant intrusion, including of the roof of greater than 12 inches in an occupied site or greater than 18 inches at any site, or the need for extrication of an entrapped patient. The change here is adding extrication back in. Several iterations ago, the guidelines included extrication taking greater than 20 minutes as one of the criterion, but it was subsequently removed. However, some newer data is showing that extrication of any duration is a significant predictor of serious injury in both adults and children. Now, third, a pedestrian or bicycle rider thrown, run over, or with significant impact. The guidelines used to specify the speed at which the patient was hit at 20 miles an hour or faster, but now speed is not included as a criterion more to simplify language. There's some data suggesting 20 miles per hour is a decent predictor of injury, but not necessarily for every type of accident. Fourth, a rider separated from a transport vehicle with significant impact, including things like motorcycle, ATV, horse, etc. This specifies inclusion of all transport vehicles and not just cars, and also removed that speed cutoff of 20 miles per hour. 
Some newer data shows that there's not good predictive utility of a speed cutoff at 20 miles per hour for all types of accidents, so it was removed. And the addition of these different types of vehicle was added to capture more accidents involving children. And the final change in the mechanism category was it fall from a height greater than 10 feet for all ages. Now this used to be specified as 20 feet for adults or 10 for children. However, data suggests that 10 feet has a good predictive utility for both adults and children. So this was simplified to just heights greater than 10 feet for all ages. There also used to be a description of children falling greater than two to three times their height, but using 10 feet seems to have a good predictability. So this has been simplified. To recap, if any of these criteria for injury pattern, vital signs or mental status or mechanism of injury are met, then you need to go to the level one trauma center. Once again, we've only covered the changes here. There are still many other reasons to go to a trauma center that have not changed, such as amputation or degloving of an extremity, et cetera. So again, refer to the guideline and trauma lecture for more information. So if none of these initial criteria are met, we move to a category called EMS provider judgment. This is a tricky category to decipher because it comes down to your critical thinking and your gut feeling about the patient or the incident. There are some specific criteria listed that should prompt you to consider transport to a trauma center. However, these are not hard rules like the categories we just reviewed. So this is kind of more of a nuanced category. The list of criteria that you can consider include low level falls in young children under five years old or in older adults over 65 years with significant head impact. So what does significant head impact mean? That's for you to consider. I'm sure many of you have seen plenty of low level falls where the patient seems totally fine, but have also seen some ground level falls with pretty significant injuries. So use your judgment here. Essentially the data on this shows that some people can sustain serious injury from these low level falls while others are completely fine. It's really hard to predict exactly which falls will lead to more severe injuries, so this should just prompt you to think about whether the patient needs a trauma center. We also can't forget to keep a high index of suspicion for child abuse when thinking about trauma in children. Abused children have higher mortality rates. So if something seems off to you or you're worried about safety at home, a trauma destination like children's is the right place to go. They have all the set specialty resources to address this from a medical aspect as well as a social and legal if needed. Special high resource healthcare needs is another aspect that we need to consider here. And this one also has some room for interpretation. The American College of Surgeons guideline only really specifies trach slash vent patients or patients with cardiac devices such as LVADs, but also say among others, in quotes. The studies reviewed for these guideline updates showed that patients with significant comorbidities had higher rates of death and were sometimes under triage. So if you think the patient has special high resource health needs, it's probably best to get them to the trauma center. Next up is anticoagulation, another tricky one sometimes. The old guidelines included anticoagulation, use, and bleeding disorders. However, the data on traumatic injuries in this group is somewhat conflicted. Some studies showed poor predictability of injury just based on anticoagulant use, while others showed increased risk for intracranial hemorrhage in older patients, hence this falling into the EMS provider judgment category. Do your best to get a good history of the meds the patient is on, including blood thinners or antiplatelet meds like Plavix, and assess the mental status. Finally, the EMS provider judgment category includes, if concerned, go to a trauma center. Of note, if the patient does not meet any of the first criteria, they can be transported to a trauma center if you think they need to go by any level provider. That means private BLS, if appropriate. 
This is meant to capture all the cases that don't fall into the categories we just discussed. As we know, patients don't read the textbook, so we need to leave some room for interpretation here. This relies on your judgment as an experienced critical thinking provider. Sometimes the patient might have multiple indicators on the EMS provider judgment category that pushes you to a trauma center. For example, a low-level fall while on blood thinners in a patient with a high-resource health need. This means go with your gut. You are experienced critical thinkers, and when something about a patient just doesn't feel right, trust yourself and take the patient to a trauma center. So if you work your way through this guideline and do not have concern for serious or moderate injury as outlined, then the patient can go to the closest, most appropriate facility. All right. So we reviewed a lot of changes and updates here. There's going to be more to come on this in the upcoming trauma lecture, but we want to run through two quick cases as examples. Dr. Field will take us through our first example here. So we have an 18-month-old male who was in an MVC with the car going 40 miles per hour. The patient's car was rear-ended. The patient was in a forward-facing car seat, but not appropriately restrained. Vitals, heart rate was 170, blood pressure 76 over 46, respiratory rate 30, and oxygen 98%. The patient has been really quiet since your arrival and hasn't been crying or fussy during your assessment. He is tachypneic, but lungs are clear. When we think about this case, first, we have a not properly restrained child. They're not buckled in, facing the wrong direction. Therefore, they should be taken to a pediatric trauma center if possible. When we look at the patient's vitals, we remember that in children ages nine and under, we use a different way to determine the risk of shock. We use systolic blood pressure less than 70 plus two times the age in years. So for this patient, 70 plus two times about two is 74. Since 76 um, systolic blood pressure is greater, that alone would not make us worried about shock. But as you recall, blood pressure change is a late finding. So the heart rate of 170 might make us worry about the child, even with the reassuring blood pressure. Plus, despite speed not playing a part in our assessment any longer, his mental status is concerning and should trigger your EMS provider judgment to be worried for a possible injury and go to a trauma center. Great. Thanks, Dr. Field. And our second case here is a 68-year-old male with a ground-level fall. He tripped in his kitchen, may have hit his head on the table on the way down. It happened pretty fast, but no loss of consciousness. He's not exactly sure about the details, though. He's complaining of face pain and shortness of breath. Blood pressure is 110 over 79, heart rate of 115, respiratory rate of 25, and a pulse ox of 88% on room air. He gets four liters by nasal cannula and improves to 97%, but still a little tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 28, lungs are clear bilaterally. When you look at his face, he's got some right eye swelling, his eyes almost swollen shut now, and some cheekbone swelling and pain. He does not take any blood thinners. So the things to think about here are there are some hard cutoffs for his vitals. Uh, he's got an elevated respiratory rate, does have hypoxia, and does qualify for shock index with that heart rate of 115 and a systolic blood pressure of 110. So just based on vitals alone, he should go to a trauma center. He's not on any blood thinners, but he does have some facial trauma that may also be significant. If we even took away his abnormal vital signs in this picture, we would consider he's an older male with a ground level fall and signs of trauma plus shortness of breath, so we should consider a more severe injury. This is an area where your EMS provider judgment should come in. All right. Those are some great cases to kind of sum up what we've been talking about here today. There are many nuances to this process, and we know that some of these changes may raise questions. 
This topic with more examples will be covered in this month's lecture, but please reach out early and often with any questions that arise. And that'll do it for this month. I know that was a long one, but thanks for hanging in there. Dr. Field, thanks again for being here with us to share your insights and expertise. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you all next month, but until then, thanks for all your hard work and take care. Thanks, Docs. Terrific as always. Uh, always appreciate your time and expertise. Uh, and especially being able to come out and talk to our providers about a lot of the whys of why we're doing things and not just the what's. We really appreciate it. And again, a special thanks to Dr. Field for being able to join us today and give us that pediatric perspective. So thanks everybody for joining. Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next month. Stay safe.